After weeks of keeping the international community spellbound with his sudden disappearance and rumors of his death, Kim Jong-un has re-emerged in public. But this whole event raised a very important question in people's minds. Who would succeed North Korea's supreme leader if he were to die? It's clear to even people without medical degrees that Kim Jong-un is not the healthiest bloke on the international stage. A heart attack would not be out of the question. What would happen to North Korea then? Who would command the country's 1 million strong military and nuclear arsenal? To answer some of these questions, we have today Ken Gauss, director of the Adversary Analytics Program at CNA, and Chris Steinitz, director of the North Korea Program in the Adversary Analytics Program. They are the authors of a recent article in the Peninsula blog on the question of succession in North Korea. As a quick caveat, the discussion was recorded before news emerged of Kim Jong-un's public appearance. But the discussion on what might happen if the North Korean leader were to be suddenly incapacitated is nonetheless timely and important to consider now more than ever. With no further delay, from the Korea Economic Institute, I'm your host, Yang Kwan, social distancing in Washington, D.C., and you're listening to Korean Context. Ken and Chris, welcome to Korean Context today. Thank you very much for having us. Kim Jong-un has not been seen in public since April 11th. This is fueling a lot of speculation that the leader of North Korea may be dead. Of course, we know from past cases that not all disappearances hint at the death of a leader. Kim Jong-il, for instance, disappeared for several months in 2008, and Kim Jong-un himself also disappeared for six weeks in 2014. But whenever it happens, Kim Jong-un's death would leave international audiences with the same question, which is, what comes next? Ken and Chris, you wrote an article for KAI's Peninsula blog alongside your colleague Elizabeth Yang on that precise question. Chris, if I may start with you, although North Korea does not have a formal succession process, clearly there is a very successful de facto process that was able to pass power from Kim Il-sung to Kim Jong-il and then from Kim Jong-il to Kim Jong-un. Could you tell us a little bit about what this process looks like? Sure. And I would caveat that with, I don't know if there is a whole lot of the process that is de facto, except that it is that leadership has passed from father to son twice. And that is pretty unique among authoritarian regimes in the post-World War II world. But North Korea has pulled it off twice. However, when power transferred from Kim Il-sung to Kim Jong-il, and then from Kim Jong-il to Kim Jong-un, there are huge differences in the processes that took place in each case. First and foremost, Kim Jong-il, before he became leader, he had been the heir apparent for many, many years. And he had also been a key leader in his father's regime going back to the 70s. Even prior to 1980, Kim Jong-il was referred to as the party center in North Korean propaganda. In the Sixth Party Congress in 1980, he received a lot more leadership power in the party and in the government, and that continued to expand and evolve over the course of the 1980s. So by the time he actually inherited rule of North Korea after his father's death in 1994, Kim Jong-il had about 20 years to work within the regime to consolidate his power. And there were a lot of political machinations and a lot of movement over those two decades where he was able to establish his bona fides in all of the important sectors of the North Korean government and really establish himself as the uncontested ruler by the time that he took over. Now, if you compare that to the passage of power to Kim Jong-un, 
Kim Jong-un didn't have uh, any role in the North Korean government until 2009. And this is because it wasn't until Kim Jong-il's stroke in 2008 that they really began to move forward on some sort of a succession process. So over the course of 2008, then 2009, 2010, we begin to see a greater presence of Kim Jong-un, but it really wasn't until 2010 that people began to speculate that he was probably the heir apparent to his father. And of course, Kim Jong-il died at the end of 2011. So we're looking at a process of less than three years to establish Kim Jong-un as the uncontested ruler of North Korea. So there was a very different process of establishing his authorities, establishing his bona fides. You may remember in 2009, 2010, first there was a drive to establish Kim Jong-un as a brilliant tactician and play up his military credentials, which of course were largely invented. There was a faulty push to give him some economic bona fides with the attempted revaluation of the North Korean currency, and that, that didn't work. It was a much quicker process to establish Kim Jong-un as the ruler. And that's why the really the first five years of Kim Jong-un's rule focused almost exclusively on establishing his credentials and his bona fides to lead the North Korean regime. It was really focused on power consolidation. And it wasn't until the Seventh Party Congress in 2016 that we can really look at as the culmination and hitting the full stride for Kim Jong-un's power consolidation within the regime. So there is a de facto process in that power is passed from father to son, but in the two times that it has happened, it has unfolded very, very differently. As a result, we would expect that any passage of power to any regime that comes after Kim Jong-un is also going to be defined primarily around the political process and the dynamics that are existing in North Korea at the time. And whether that's now or five years from now or 30 years from now, it's going to play out completely differently. You mentioned a lot about the institutions, the party congress and the dynamics within the North Korean state. Ken, you have also written and spoken in the past about how institutions and ideologies limit the actions of even the supreme leader in North Korea. Who do you see as the most critical players in supporting a new leader when succession takes place? Well, I think we answer that question in two parts. One is the ideology and the traditions of the leadership in the Kim family does put certain constraints on Kim Jong-un and would put constraints on his successor because they would have to operate within established boundaries that have been set down by Kim Jong-il and Kim Il-sung in terms of policy, be that domestic policy or foreign policy. As a leader, in this case, Kim Jong-un, begins to consolidate his power and completes that consolidation process, he has more and more latitude to operate within those policy guidelines. Since 2016, definitely since 2017, 2018, Kim has gone a long way toward uh, consolidating his power and his ability to move and establish policy boundaries of his own, but we have yet to see that fully play out on issues, say, as the nuclear program or uh, even on economic reform issues. So we haven't seen that yet. In terms of who would be the various institutions and people in power that he would have to play to, I think one thing we need to understand is Kim Jong-un is a third-generation leader, and as a third-generation leader, he does not share the inherent legitimacy 
of his father and grandfather, and so therefore he has to show progress on policies and policy making. And that's why we have seen him vacillate between economic policy and nuclear policy. What he's playing to is a wide variety of interests within the regime, party interests, Kim family interests, wider leadership interests. There's not really any single individuals that you can point to. But one thing that we do know is that as we move from Kim Jong-un to the whatever leadership configuration follows after that, the legitimacy will be even weaker. And so, therefore, those policy boundaries that are already established under Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, and now Kim Jong-un will have to be adhered to, at least in the initial period as we move through the transition of power. Can you actually dig into that a little more? So within those boundaries, given the trends that we have seen in North Korea so far, what can we expect for the next leadership, whether it's in the Kim family or outside of it? What can we expect to remain consistent in North Korea going forward? The things that remain consistent, you can look at factors both internal to North Korea and external to North Korea primarily how North Korea deals with the outside world. Because even if there is a new regime, those dynamics are not going to change. There is still going to be an elite constituency in North Korea that the Kim family is primarily responsible to. They have a vote and they get to exercise their concerns. And if their concerns are not being met, that makes internal stability much more difficult. You have to consider the status of the Danju, who will certainly not go anywhere, no matter how the regime takes place. And so any subsequent regime is going to have to take those economic realities into consideration. I would also say that any subsequent North Korean regime is going to inherit the totalitarian police state that props up the regime right now. Do not expect any sort of democratic transition in North Korea anytime soon, because the politics and the institutional realities of changing anything that dramatically are just non-existent in the country right now. Everything to this point has been focused on propping up the regime, which would make it very, very difficult without a catastrophic failure to shift any power to power centers outside of Pyongyang around the country. Internally, any regime is going to have to deal with that. So even if you did have someone who was reform-minded in some way, they would still face those fundamental challenges. In some of the notes you sent before, you said, is there any countries that we might look to for precedent? I think in that regard of someone who, and I'm not saying that there is a reform-minded person in North Korea, but you know, if you assume that someone did come there and then try to make those changes, you might look to the difficulties that Myanmar has had in having a democratically elected government and then having to fall back on the hard politic realities of the country. I think any hope for change internally for North Korea is going to be very, very difficult. Similarly, external pressures on North Korea are going to remain the same. North Korea is not going to give up its nuclear program because it will still continue to feel threatened by much larger neighbors. It's still going to want to be a player on the world stage. And so sanctions regimes are still going to be in place. They're still going to have to find, shall we say, innovative ways to make money in the global economy. And no ensuing regime is going to be able to shake off those external realities. So you're still going to have 
a very adversarial relationship with the United States. You're still going to have the threat of military action from the United States and South Korea that North Korean leadership is going to be concerned about. They're still going to have the much larger and more powerful Chinese state to the north of them uh, that they are always going to have to deal with. So these fundamental realities are going to remain constant and ultimately would shape the decision space for any ensuing North Korean regime. And any examples that you look to as precedents? When I look at North Korea, I look at it as a, a country into itself with a unique history. And you can't really look at other precedents, other countries or things, and try to adapt their lessons learned to what may or may not happen with North Korea. I agree with Chris is that we're likely not going to see a lot of change. I guess two things that potentially could drive some change with North Korea would be one If for some reason they decided to move beyond the Kim family to some other leadership configuration to follow Kim Jong-un, I think that would be inherently or very potentially unstable. And that, of course, can have some implications for how the regime goes forward. And also, if the United States were to seriously engage with North Korea and put sanctions relief on, on the table, provided that there would be enough consensus in a post-Kim regime to be able to take up the United States on such an offer, that could lead to some limited amount of change, but I don't see a dramatic change such as giving up the nuclear weapon systems or other things, but it could have a major impact on issues such as stability, economic stability inside the country. Moving into the wonderful and kindly blog article that you wrote for us at KAI, you outline four possible scenarios emerging in the aftermath of Kim Jong-un's potential hypothetical death. Going through them in order, you note that the most likely scenario is that a member of the Kim family emerges as the supreme leader. Uh, Ken, you spoke about how there are going to be policy challenges that confront a fourth-generation leader who will carry less legitimacy than, say, Kim Jong-il or even Kim Jong-un. But what makes power remaining in the Kim family more likely than not? It's the more straight-line succession process. It is one that is established within North Korea. It's the one in which there is more legitimacy attached to it and one that the wider leadership could probably more easily get behind than some of the other leadership configurations in North Korea. And it's the one that probably, if they could pull it off, has the least amount of potential for instability in the country. You did mention in the article that there was a coup d'etat attempt in 1996 in North Korea, the Six Core coup d'etat. Could you speak a little bit about that? I think listeners would be surprised to learn that there was internal dissent within the political system in North Korea. Could you speak a little about this incident? Well, in the 1990s, there was more than just the Sixth Corps incident. Uh, In 1992, there supposedly was an attempt by elements, Soviet-backed or Soviet-trained elements within the general staff that tried to carry out some sort of change in power. And of course, that failed. It didn't even get to the the point of the plot unfolding before it was uncovered by the, uh, the secret police. The 1996 incident was one in which the Sixth Corps, which was located in North Hongyang province, which is the one of the more kind of troublesome provinces inside North Korea, began to make some moves toward resource 
acquisition within North Korea. It was challenged by other elements of the military, even the, the Sixth Corps itself. It wasn't the senior command of the Sixth Corps that supposedly was behind this, was, but was by elements at the division level and below. And of course, it was found out by the uh, Military Security Command, which is military counterintelligence inside North Korea. And working alongside the command of the Sixth Corps, they were able to put down this move by this corps to claim resources. And some say move toward Pyongyang in a coup attempt, which I think is somewhat in debate. But if you look at the list of corps now that exist inside North Korea, the Sixth Corps no longer exists. There were about 300 officers and their families who were punished for this move. And when we look at it as a Pyongyang watching community, we look at various examples of potential power struggles within the regime. That's one of the ones we look at from the kind of the military side of the equation. We obviously look at the uh, the actions being taken by Chang Sontek and the lead up to his purge and execution as being another kind of case study in potential instability. In both of these situations, we saw one element of the leadership actually beginning to enter into power struggles with other elements of the leadership, which tend to react when any sort of individual or institution really kind of steps out of line. And because of both of those incidents, as well as several other incidents that occurred in North Korea, there has been a series of coup proofing that has taken place in North Korea, where you have individuals and institutions that are set in opposition with each other as a way of keeping themselves off balance and creating more space for the supreme leader to operate in. And when you start to think about the idea of removing a supreme leader as kind of the linchpin that holds all this thing together, if he were to be removed suddenly through an illness or or death, potentially you could have these natural opposition that has been set up within the North Korean regime in the body politic, really begin to struggle against each other, and that could lead to some instability at the top. Chris, who do you think at this current moment, if you had to guess, who is that person within the Kim family who is most likely to take over? It's very hard to say because, of course, we are not there on the ground dealing with the the full set of information that anyone in the Kim family would have to be able to make that decision. But I think, as we said in the article, the most likely scenario is that a power stays with the Kim family, but that could either be through a supreme leader of the Kim family or through a figurehead supreme leader of the Kim family. I think there's been a lot of discussion and a lot of focus in the media on Kim Yo-jong, Kim Jong-un's sister, And a lot of this is very rightly placed because she has been given a lot of authority within the regime, more so than anyone else in the Kim family. That would, at the very least, give her a lot of cards to play in any sort of unfolding power dynamic that comes after. But whether or not uh, she could step in as supreme leader is questionable. We don't know exactly the full dynamic of the politics that are at play within and without of the regime that would allow her or enable her to do that. It could very well be that she does not have the clout to establish herself as supreme leader. There, of course, is the issue of patriarchy in North Korea. It is a very male-dominated society, even by the terms of male-dominated societies around the world. 
So it's hard to say if she would have enough support to be a supreme leader. But as we said, one of the other scenarios we set forward is a figurehead. There are male leaders in the Kim family that could be stood up as a, quote, supreme leader, but not actually have the power to do that. Kim Pyong-il, who is Kim Jong-il's brother, could be stood up that way. He uh, returned to Pyongyang last year over many decades abroad, but we do not see him having much of a leadership role. He doesn't show up in significant leadership capacities. He doesn't have a public profile. This suggests to us that he's not been given a lot of authority within the Kim family to make decisions or act independently and therefore to uh, accumulate any power or political support. Similarly, Kim Jong-chol, who's Kim Jong-un's older brother, he had been previously overlooked as being unfit to rule by his father. But should there be an event where they need to set a male member of the Kim family up as a supreme leader, he could also be set up as a, quote, supreme leader. But he similarly, like Pyongyang, does not have the profile, doesn't have the authorities currently in the regime to be able to really run the apparatus of North Korea. So he would really be kind of a figurehead in that regard. Could you also speak a little bit about the scenario in which there is a collective ruling dynamic in which perhaps there are members of the Kim family integrated into the, the ruling apparatus, but perhaps not. Could you speak a little bit about that as well? Sure. And I should double back real quick and mention that Kim Jong-un is believed to have a son who is too young to rule. So it is possible that he could be also set up as, quote, a supreme leader, but that would need the backing of some sort of a regent system. The collective leadership model is one where there might be elements of the Kim family who, of course, as we've established, hold all of the political cards and hold most of the political clout, as well as the legitimacy of the Paktu bloodline. But for some reason or another, they cannot exert their authority unilaterally and need to act with other key stakeholders throughout the regime, senior members of the Korea Workers Party, of the military, uh, that there has to be some sort of negotiation behind the scenes to establish what the rules of the road are for a regime in the future. Such a, an arrangement would be inherently unstable. Collective rule typically does not work well for very long in authoritarian regimes, but it is certainly a model that could emerge under the, the right circumstances in a uh, post-Kim Jong-un world. Now, as researchers looking into this opaque state, do you have any recommendations for listeners who might be budding political scientists or career watchers on topics and areas where you would like to see more research on North Korea? Well, I think that probably understanding the leadership beyond just the few people that we know of or that are spoken of quite frequently in the media, that includes you know, members of the, the party, the, the military, internal security, the cabinet, knowing who's who in the zoo is the best place to start. Then upon that, you need to develop a framework for understanding the regime in which you put your assumptions on the line of how you think this regime operates and you begin to adjust that framework as time goes on and you gather more data and more information. I have a feeling that we tend to rely too much on looking backwards understand where North Korea is and where it's going. 
Under Kim Jong-un, we have relied way too much on thinking about how the system worked under Kim Jong-il and then just laying that over the regime that Kim Jong-un operates without considering the possibility that there are some fundamentally different things, some of which we discussed today. So I think you need to always keep your mind open uh, for the possibility of change inside North Korea. It may not always be obvious, but we always need to be on the lookout for it. We have too many people out there, including seasoned Pyongyang watchers, who tend to look at this regime as if it's never changed a day since the Kim Il-sung period. And I think we really need to begin to look beyond that if we're ever going to be able to find possible solutions to the challenges that North Korea poses for us. Yeah, I would like to have a new conversation where we're talking beyond just the same old questions, the same old people, and the same old topics time and time and time again. And we begin to look at what is the art of the possible when it comes to North Korea? And that begins with, you know, what are the dynamics inside North Korea? And what are the appropriate policies to bring out of North Korea a dynamic that we can actually work with, as opposed to just saying, it's our way or the highway. And so therefore, if you don't meet these criteria, we're just going to continue to either ignore you or put pressure on you. And we're really not trying to look at ways in which we can engage the regime and be able to actually see whether that regime can be slowly step-by-step changed over time. I would echo that for anyone who is coming into the Korea watching sphere right now. Keep an open mind at first about what you are seeing and what we are seeing, what we can observe in North Korea. It's been our experience that there is a lot of old think in the Pyongyang watching community where people, of course, need to understand the history and look back at it. But Kim Jong-un is not Kim Jong-il. Kim Jong-un's regime is not his father's regime. The dynamics of his rule are different in very significant ways. And we need to look at this evidence and reinterpret it for the current reality rather than uh, relying on old models. And I think there's a lot of difficulty in the policy community of not evolving the thinking on North Korea rapidly enough to keep up with reality and and facts on the ground. And it causes significant troubles for developing effective North Korea policy when we are beholden to the dominant thinking of 15, 20, and 30 years ago. A really interesting area to study would be new authoritarianism, because there is often a, particularly in policy circles, an oversimplified and unhelpful understanding of authoritarianism when, in fact, there are many deep different dynamics that drive these regimes. And looking to the world ahead, even beyond North Korea, being able to understand what makes authoritarian regimes tick, how we can work with them and influence them and limit their influence in various ways is going to be really essential. That's it for our episode today. Many thanks to Ken Gauss, Chris Steinitz, and to you listeners for tuning in. You can find the link to Ken and Chris's article on succession, co-authored with CNA research specialist Elizabeth Yang, in the description of this episode. Please also keep an eye out for their upcoming article on this issue in 38th North and their upcoming paper on developments in North Korea due out this summer. We also have a busy week ahead at KEI. Please tune in on Tuesday, May 12th at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time for a discussion with former U.S. Forces Korea Commander Walter Skip Sharp on burden sharing between Korea and the United States. 
And then on Wednesday, May 13th, we have researchers from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development who will discuss the current state of North Korean economy and whether it will be the world's last transition economy. RSVPs to both of these webinar events can be found in the description of this episode. You can also stream these events live on KAI's YouTube channel. See you there.